0: Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at asht.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. This week, we celebrate Veterans Day, and we are so fortunate to be joined on this episode by an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist who serves in the United States Air Force. We discuss the role of a hand therapist in the military, her unique journey from civilian status to being commissioned, and how a hand therapist contributes to the overall mission of the United States military. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Kate.
1: So we have Kate Baker with us this evening, and Kate, give us a little bit of a background about what you do, who you are. All right. Well, my name is Kate Brousseau. It was Baker just recently. I've
2: recently married, so my name has changed to Brousseau, but I'm a major in the United States Air Force, and I'm also an occupational therapist and a certified hand therapist, and I've been in OT since 2010, when I graduated from Washington University's Occupational Therapy Program in St. Louis, Missouri. And now uh, my last field work was actually at Duke University Medical Center. And after I finished the field work, they hired me. So my very first job was working in a cardiothoracic ICU, and I did that for about two years. And I started getting curious about where was I headed? What did I want to do with my education? And How did I want my career to progress? And that's when I started looking at the military. So I come from a military background. My father was enlisted for over 30 years. And so it was something that I was familiar with, but wasn't familiar with on the medical or practitioner side. So I started looking and I talked to a medical recruiter and turns out, luckily, they were hiring at the time. And so I submitted my application, met their board, went through all the physical requirements, and was selected to commission. And so I commissioned to the Air Force in 2012. And my first duty location after I had finished my training in Alabama was Travis Air Force Base in California. And that particular assignment was actually selected for me because of my experience at Duke University Medical Center working in the cardiothoracic ICU. They were setting up a cardiothoracic unit there and were looking for experienced rehab professionals to get that started and going. Travis Air Force Base has the largest hospital in the Air Force. And so I was working inpatient and outpatient. So inpatient, I was seeing my cardiac patients and outpatient was the first time that I was really exposed to orthopedic upper extremity injuries. And they have an orthopedic hand surgeon there. And so I was getting all of his consults and seeing his patients. And this is where I really started to get my interest in upper extremity rehab and particularly hand therapy. As he was performing hand surgeries, I was doing the rehab. And I had a huge learning curve. So I would see patients during the day, go home at night, study, look things up, reach out to a different network of other OTs that have more experience than myself. And I continued that for about a year when I was made aware of the Occupational Therapy Fellowship at the Philadelphia Hand to Shoulder Center. I applied and the military sponsored me for that application. And luckily I was accepted to that position. So I I moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that's where I started the fellowship where I spent six months working in the occupational therapy clinic there with just the most tremendous therapist you could possibly imagine. And I learned everything that they had to give. I soaked it up. I put together presentations that, that I would then send back to the um, occupational therapist in the Air Force to say, hey, the guys, this is what we're doing. This is what's working. I did that for six months, and then I spent a year in the physician extender portion of the fellowship, and this is something that is uniquely offered to military personnel, because our job requires us often to work very autonomously, and also in a deployed setting, we need to be able to triage So we need to be able to be first eyes on a particular injury and determine where does that go? Does that go to continue observation? Does that go to therapy, to treat, to return this person in theater, able to perform their duties? Or does this need to see a surgeon and potentially be medevaced out of a deployed environment? So I spent a year there working with amazing surgeons and their hand surgical fellows as well. And so this was probably one of the most exciting things I've ever been able to do and walked out of there with more knowledge than I knew what to do with initially. So after 18 months there in Philadelphia, I was matched to my next assignment coming back into a military position and they matched me to the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And the reason I was matched to that assignment was because of the special training and the knowledge that I had and to take that and apply it in multiple settings. So I don't know how familiar you all are with the Air Force Academy, but it's essentially like a university. It's a four year undergraduate school or academy. And our goal is to take students who are there to get their bachelor's degree and essentially develop them into leaders and make sure that they're able to complete their military training at the academy and then go on to serve in the United States Air Force. And we have a hand surgeon there because we also have intercollegiate athletes, which as you can imagine, come up with all kinds of injuries related to the upper extremity. So we have gymnasts, we have football players, we have lacrosse players. They also have to do pretty rigorous training while they're there, including combatives and water survival, which often results in upper extremity injury. And So I was matched to work with this particular surgeon so that we could, as a team, get these kids through school. I worked there for four years and then applied for a special duty assignment where now, which is the position that I hold now as an instructor at the Air Force Academy, teaching human anatomy and physiology and biomechanics. So it was really an opportunity for me to step outside of the traditional occupational therapist role and now work as an educator for these students as well. So I continue to see patients. I see patients when I can, I call it part-time, but it's sometimes more, sometimes less, but I'm able to step into the med group to wear that occupational therapist hat. But then also I'm teaching on a regular basis. We had class this morning where I'm proud to say we dissected the brachial plexus.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Something we're all familiar with.
2: (laughs) Yes. Oh gosh. I was like stepping back into that really made me have flashbacks to when I was in school. And we use human cadavers, which is unusual for an undergraduate program. But one of the perks of being in the military is that we're we're able to to get those things for our students. And I get to give a unique perspective on injury and anatomy based off of my experience working in the Air
1: Force and with, of course, my background in occupational therapy. So I have a question and I, forgive me if this is a stupid question, but so you graduated your traditional OT first and then went into the military, correct? Yes, I did. So can you do it the opposite way? Like say if somebody wanted to enroll in the military, did their training and then realized, hey, I would like to go into therapy, whatever therapy it may be. Can you do it that way as well? Or... You know, that's an excellent question. And I'm glad
2: that you actually asked that because this is something that we are working to change. So right now is to become an occupational therapist in the Air Force. It really is you do your education on the civilian. When I say civilian, I just mean outside of the military. You do your education. and We require that you have around 24 months of clinical experience before you can even apply to meet the board, to have your packet reviewed to move on to the next level to commission. So a lot of my students, you know when I'm talking and even patients that I've had at the Air Force Academy, they love occupational therapy and they're, they they want to know how can I do this? Can I do this in the military like you did? And right now unfortunately the answer is eh, no. If you graduate with your bachelor's degree, you have to pay back the time for your bachelor's degree coming out of the Air Force Academy, which is usually about four years of service, four to five years, and then you can apply. But you're going to have to pay for your schooling and all that on your own, any graduate education. So I'm currently working with our health professions advisor committee at the Air Force Academy to change this. Because in my eyes, there, you know, this is a valuable service that we are offering to our Air Force personnel. They need occupational therapists and they need certified hand therapists in particular. So if we can take a cadet that has all that military training, all that leadership, military bearing, how to wear the uniform, how to lead, and we can sponsor them in a program, a graduate program for three or four years to get their master's or their doctorate, we should be doing that. And so it's simply a matter of removing some of these red tapes that have existed for many years and making this a streamlined process to recruit valuable individuals that have that military training already. I see it as an investment in our profession and an investment in the individual themselves. They, they already have a service commitment. So let's, let's go ahead and get the most out of them. And if this is something that they're inspired by, something that they're interested in, I can't imagine a better candidate to, to pull for us. So hopefully in the future, in the coming years, this is something we can change. And we're routing this up to DC and we're saying, Hey, it's, you know, it's not just occupational therapy where we're having this. It's also our nutritionists and other medical specialists that have this kind of backwards wave through recruitment.
0: So you mentioned, I guess the experience that you got in Philly, the year long kind of physician extender piece that that can really be utilized in deployment settings. I guess what is the role of a hand therapist and what would be a typical day or typical time on that deployment for someone working in that kind of a a setting?
2: Yeah. And it goes beyond even just a deployment. So think about a deployment as when you're you're tasked to go in and operate within whatever our mission is and you're on the front line there. You're at the hospital that is very close to wherever the battlefield is. And in that capacity, your job is to keep the mission going. And uh, interestingly, a lot of the injuries that we have in a deployed setting would be something like overuse injuries from weight training. A lot of times on deployment, individuals want to get really fit before they come home and (laughs) they lift too many weights. And so you're, you're simply trying to treat whatever their particular complaint or their ailment is while keeping them in theater in that setting and able to continue their regular job while they're there but it starts at home really in the day to day. So an occupational therapist in the military and one of the biggest differences that I felt coming from a civilian practice into a military practice, is all of a sudden I went from a community of 17 other occupational therapists and physical therapists even. And I went from there to a place where I was the only one in my profession. So all of a sudden I went from a network of people I could ask questions and I could bounce ideas off of, and we could do co-treatments to operating completely solo. And so this physician extender training really allowed me to do that to my fullest capacity. So our clinics, we are not referral-based, it is walk-in. So anybody and everyone with any sort of injury, upper extremity, lower extremity, comes to our clinic where we have physical and occupational therapists we have about eight physical therapists to one occupational therapist here at the academy and they come in with whatever complaint they have maybe they jammed their finger playing basketball that morning or they you know had a fall in the parking lot it, it could be almost anything and my job then is to screen them identify if there are any red flags or something that would be important for them to see a physician or if it is appropriate for my clinic to initiate a treatment and evaluation and come up with a plan to get them back to their prior status. And so the Physician Extender Fellowship, I was able to do that with a group of surgical fellows and a doctor able to look at my evaluation, critique my evaluation and make sure I was getting it right. So I had someone kind of holding my hand along the way asking me, well, what are you gonna do next? What does this x-ray tell you? What are you going to do when you order that MRI? Like, what are you looking for? Where is the clinical reasoning behind your decisions that you're making? And ultimately, then, what do you do with this patient? Do you treat them or do you refer them to another source, to a specialty source? And so it really prepped me to be able to function in the capacity to the greatest of my abilities that the military has asked me to do.
1: So that's that triage thing that you were talking about earlier,
2: Yes, very
1: much. So it's kind of, I don't want to say nice, but you know, you can kind of make that decision right up front and not have to go under physician's orders. Right. So if they just needed therapy, you can just jump and dive right into therapy.
2: Yes. And oftentimes, and you know, it is really nice. Our education equips us so much with this huge plethora of information. And then when we go into a practice setting in the civilian network, sometimes we're only able to use a fraction of that, even though we may be the orthopedic expert, the biomechanic expert, all of a sudden we have to consult someone who maybe doesn't know as much as we do about that particular thing. So this allows me to use that skill set, run my diagnostics and then properly refer people to, okay, well, this looks like, you know, this may be more of like a immunocompromised situation. So this isn't really appropriate for therapy right now. We need to get a proper diagnosis. So I need to send you to a rheumatologist. Or I run some x-rays and I say, wow, this is a fracture. And actually this is displaced. You need to go to an orthopedic surgeon. This is not something therapy is going to fix yet. You need to go and have this fixed surgically. And then you will come back to me. Or this is something that's completely off the wall. You need to just see a regular MD. You have a cold, my friend. Like
0: (laughs) you need to go this way. (laughs) Well, it's, this is not the place for that art for this discussion, but kind of the argument that physical therapists are making around direct access. The military's kind of proving it here that it can work and that you can pick up on those things. And But I will say one difference that, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you, I think you just mentioned it, you do have the ability to order imaging. Is that correct? Yes.
2: And that's a, you know, we, we spend time in school and I spent so much time in the fellowship learning how, like what images to order, what views to order, and then what are you looking for? What is normal versus abnormal? And so you actually get to use that in the military. I can order images. I can order blood work. I can even prescribe certain medications. When I say medications, I call it Air Force Skittles. So we're talking about ibuprofen. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing that could possibly be, be much fun, but um, but we're able to do that. So I don't have to bring in other services to get what I need to know. And I certainly do have to pull in other services when something comes back that I'm unsure of. And that's where having a network and we talk about teamwork. So I'm, I'm a team with my physical therapist, with my orthopedic surgeons and with my regular family medicine or family practice docs. If I see something that I'm unsure of, like I have to take that next step to now that I've assumed this patient and I've taken responsibility for ordering those images, I got to get an answer. And so that means reaching out to those other colleagues within my hospital and getting the right answer for this patient.
0: So I want to know what was harder going from being a civilian practicing to then immediately going in commissioned, or was it harder finishing up your fellowship and going back into the military setting? Yeah, that's it.
2: (laughs) Both were hard. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, the first year after I commissioned into the military, my head was spinning. I went from, you know, like I said, like working at Duke where I had all these other colleagues, much more experienced and better therapists than I was at the time. And I went to being by myself. I really had a kind of like a life check at that moment. (laughs) It was like, what have I done now? Not only am I seeing patients, but I'm seeing patients with diagnoses that I'm unfamiliar with and I'm running a clinic. I was also the element lead. So now I had people appointed underneath me that I was responsible for. And I had to train them to do the job that I expected of them. And, and not just you know professional development, but also leadership and character development. All of a sudden I was responsible for all of these things. And it takes time to adjust to that new responsibility and to learn really what this looks like and, and how this plays out. And I'm certainly a much better therapist. I'm certainly a much better leader now than I was back then. Now with almost 10 years of service under my belt, like I, I much more can see the bigger picture of what we're doing with our airmen. And what the goals of our clinic are and the mission of the Air Force as a whole. But when I went into my military setting where I was top dog running my clinic and <laughs> I go to fellowship where all of a sudden, you know, I make a splint and they look at it and they say, that's no good. And I'm like, well, no one said that before, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm with people who are much better at being a therapist again. And and now I have their feedback and And I think fellowship is challenging for a lot of people because you are hearing where you are weak. It is very clear in what you are doing and you are getting that constant feedback. And I wouldn't say criticism because they weren't criticizing me. They were making me better by pointing out where I was, where my failings were. And so while frustrating to a certain extent, that's how you grow. You learn from others who are better than you. And so there was an adjustment period there. And then, of course, when I transitioned to the physician extender, I felt like I was just way in over my head with people who know so much more than me. But they wanted to teach me. I had such amazing mentors there that I still reach out to and are still giving me advice to this day. And I'm so lucky to have established those connections, those friendships and those professional mentors. But then coming back to the military, I felt Excited to get back into patient care and seeing my military patients again because now I was really ready. I was ready to treat people, to evaluate, to diagnose, and come up with these awesome treatment plans and to essentially flip the clinic upside down. The way that it was run before wasn't going to go that way anymore because I knew better now. And so I came in kind of like blazing to turn this around and get us started in the right way and doing things to this higher level. But I had not worn the uniform in 18 months. And so I felt from the military bearing, customs and courtesies, that leadership part was somewhat diminished. And it took a while to spin me back up to being both the clinician, the occupational therapist, and then also the officer again. So both were certainly challenging, but situations in which I feel I grew from and I benefited from in the long run. You put the work in and it it does pay off.
1: So a typical day in your clinic, obviously, you said you get a lot of repetitive type injuries, but do you see other various injuries as well? Oh, yeah. You name it, we
2: see it. (laughs) (laughs) Everything you can think of. So we do, we see a certain amount of repetitive strain injury. I always feel like the military population. So I primarily will treat active duty military so we, we work in a network, meaning that, so at the United States Air Force Academy, this is one military base of many in the Colorado Springs area. So we also have Fort Carson, which is a Army base, and we have Peterson Space Force Base, and we have Schriever Air Force Base. So all these different bases, their active duty come to the United States Air Force Academy for any occupational therapy needs. So I see Army, Space Force. Air Force, Marines, and even Navy, because we get a few Marines and Navy that are stationed at these bases, again, as like a joint assignment. So they're rare and far in between, but I I see them all. And I see a lot, I would say over 50% of my caseload is Army. And so we'll see the general repetitive strain injuries that you would see in the civilian network. We, the military very much reflects the civilian population as well. So we see everything from carpal tunnel, you know, your cubital tunnel to gunshot wounds, amputations. When we have a unit come back, I'll be watching on the news and I'll see that a certain unit has returned from a deployment. So we're talking a unit, we're talking hundreds of people in the army. So I know hundreds of people are now coming back to the Colorado Springs area. And many of these patients may have ongoing injuries that they sustained on deployment that didn't warrant their return home early. And so they're going to be coming into my clinic. So this could be anything from a gunshot wound to those repetitive type injuries that we talked about, and also combat stress and mental fatigue. And so in the the military, not only are we orthopedic experts, but we also treat mental health to a certain extent. So we have mental health professionals, of course, but occupational therapy with our background in mental health, we are used to triage and also to initiate some, some group treatments when it's appropriate.
1: So do you have any access to like cutting edge interventions or treatments that I know sometimes things, and I don't know for a fact, and you can correct me if I'm completely wrong, but like, like interventions as far as rep- surgical repairs or even just different types of treatments that, that we might not have access to?
2: Um, I don't know that we would have access to anything that wasn't a product of research going on outside of the military. That's where a lot of the, you know, a lot of our surgeons are trained in outside facilities. So they bring that back to us. A couple of exciting things that we, I was working on with my hand surgeon, Dr. Henderson is the TANG protocol for a flexor tendon repair, where you begin. In early active motion, it's similar to a pyramid approach, but it moves much more quickly, so much faster. That I was just waiting to see what was going to happen as I'm, I'm pushing them through. And I'm like, You sure you want me to do this? Are you sure? I'm doing it. <laughs> and, it and it actually <laughs> We've turned out all been really met well. that way. <laughs> <laughs> we all. You said it, right? I'm going to do it. Right. <laughs> And then also because we work with athletes, so we have a baseball team for the, for the Air Force. And so we do see a decent amount of UCL repairs for the elbow. And so we were watching these young and our populations, especially when we're talking about the Air Force Academy students, like they're young, they're usually between the ages of 18 and 24, they're healthy, or they wouldn't be allowed to be here in the first place. And they're incredibly active. And so we were doing these UCL repairs. And we thought, you know, so how do we get this particular cadet back to, back to their sport faster? How much can we push this? And so we were actually able to rewrite. Now we, we have a standard protocol that we use for our UCL repairs where we're advancing essentially almost six weeks faster than you would in a typical repair. And it's exciting and it's terrifying at the same time. But so far, like all of those that have gone through this protocol have done amazingly well. And it's just watching and being very close to all of their treatments. So I have a technician that I, I will write the plan and they, they implement the plan. But I'm right there watching the whole way and and having more frequent evaluations with them to make sure that, hey, this is still the right thing and catching something. If someone doesn't look like they're progressing as they should, we can catch it early and I can intervene and kind of pull them back a little bit. But when you have this special group of patients who are young, healthy, active, you have a little bit of liberty to push things a little bit more than you might on the outside.
1: I would think your clientele in the military would be very similar to treating athletes in general, just because I would think that bar is set a little bit higher. As you had mentioned, most of them are very physically fit. So they're going to want to get better a little bit faster and just kind of be a little bit more diligent as far as exercises. Do you feel like at times you may need to hold them back at all? Oh, absolutely. Going from a civilian
2: job. And even when I was working in Philadelphia with the population there, I felt like very much at the time I was like, come on, you got this. You need to be doing this. You know, you're doing this three times a day. Let's make it six and really pushing them to do more where with my military, it's kind of the opposite for most of my patients. I'm like, Whoa, you did what? Slow down. (laughs) There's no need. Take your time or we're going to still be right where we are in three weeks. So it's kind of like this flip flop. Like they're very motivated to get back to what they were doing before, which as a therapist, you know, when you think about burnout or anything else, like it's awesome to have this group of people that really want to get better. And they're, they're going to do anything you say, but they're going to do it like three times more than you said. So you have to be very clear about there is a point where there is too much, where you can overdo things. And and this is what that looks like. So you're just going to do exactly what I say. And don't think you're going to get extra credit by adding anything else on. And they also, you know, that I guess it's almost stereotypical, but a lot of military members, you know, no pain, no gain. And that's not true. I have to kind of, redefine what pain is and how to respect and understand pain. And it's not something to be pushed through or ignored. It's something, it is telling you something and it's trying to interpret that correctly.
1: So do you have the opportunity, like would you get transferred at any point in time, just like anybody else in the military can? Yes. Okay. That's
2: part of the, the sacrifice portion that I always talk about is you were really at the whim. And just when you start to get comfortable, that's usually when it comes. After you accept an assignment or you're, you're stationed at a new base, you're usually safe for about two years. And what this means is they want you to spend some time in that location, learn the job work the job. But after that two-year mark, you're on the, what's called vulnerable to move. So it's a list that's published and it's published every year after you hit that two-year mark that, Hey, heads up, we will pull you when we need you. We will pull you when you need you. And so when you get that email, you're like, what? Two years has already gone by. Like it's time to go. I'm not ready. But you have to open yourself to that because with every, you know, it may sound you get comfortable in a certain place. And part of that growth and that further career development is being able to get up and go and do the same and do better somewhere else in a new situation. And this is true for your officers as well as your enlisted. We're all constantly cycling. So, you know, I've been at the academy now for five years, working in the med group for four of those years. And now I've just transitioned to the instructor side, this special assignment But the group that I arrived here with, there's no one else here still. Like everyone has moved on. I go over to see patients and my team has completely been separated and moved out. And there's a a whole new team here. And with that comes some challenges. You know, there's some that have a different skill set. Some may have more training than others. And then that's upon me to continue their education, continue their training so that they can function in this particular assignment. But they you know, it's exciting. I have a whole new group of personalities, a whole new group of people with different personal goals, different career goals, and learning about those and doing my job as an officer to help them reach those goals. It's fun. I think as occupational therapists, we love people or we wouldn't be in this. We love to learn about, you know, the different roles that people have. And the military has always provided me that opportunity with an endless supply of new recruits.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a great opportunity that you have. You're switching between clinical and academia within that same setting. And I think that's, you know, a lot of us on the outside, you know, we work in one place and then we're, you know, we may have to travel, you know, a couple hours if we want to go into academia or even do everything virtually. So that's great that it's it's right there and you can go back and forth.
2: The academy in and its, of itself is a very special place. I feel so lucky that I got this assignment. So not only, you know, training the airmen that are Appointed underneath me that are working as my subordinates. So, not only do I get to train them, but because we are an academic institution, we also are all the hosts of multiple conferences. So, I have the opportunity to engage in those. And so, we have a physical and occupational therapy conference every year. And the past couple of years, this has been held in Colorado Springs. So, I've gotten to organize and participate in that with my physical and occupational therapy colleagues that are, you know, stationed all over the world. And then they pull us all into one room together. And I I get to see someone that I've only communicated with via email and it's just this, you leave like every conference, like very motivated new ideas and you've expanded your network of people to reach out to when you have a question. And so the Air Force Academy is also the host to the Tactical Sports Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Fellowship. I had to look at that. It's a mouthful. And so we just received accreditation about two years ago, but it's in its fourth year now. And so this is where physical therapists come to the academy to train, to be embedded in tactical units. And I was a part of the initial group that wrote the curriculum. And so they pulled in a board certified hand therapist because they, they recognize that this is a unique specialty and one that oftentimes our physical therapy counterparts are deterred from, or maybe not engaging in fully in their practice environments. And so they pull in an occupational therapist, and I'm sure they would also take in a physical therapist, anyone with that certification in hand therapy. And I wrote the upper extremity curriculum. And so I've taught them for the past three years. So we get to go into what does injury look like? How do you properly assess the wrist? How do you treat certain common diagnoses and then also how do you identify these things early in your troops how do you pick this out in a battlefield setting how do you watch somebody handle their weapon how are they marching how are they carrying their ruck and how can you change that in order to prevent an injury from happening in the first place and so it's just this unique environment and I feel really excited as the only OT there to have been pulled into this and to be able to contribute and help better the
0: my teammates in doing their job too That's really neat. So having been kind of on both sides, civilian side and military, what would you say are the top challenges of being an occupational therapist in the military and what are the greatest rewards? So top challenges, definitely
2: learning a new culture. So it it is very foreign. And even growing up in a military family, unless you are actually wearing the uniform, you don't fully see everything that's going on and understand the, the greater powers that be, the institution that now you are a part of. So learning that military culture, the expectations and how to be successful. And it's more than just being good at your trade, you know, so... You also need to develop that leadership style and you need to better those around you. Otherwise, you aren't completing your job. So I'd say a challenge is to assimilate to military culture. It's also very rewarding, though, to be a part of that culture and to be able to mentor those that are around you and have them look to you for questions and also having people to look to myself like to my my superiors to be able to go to them for training for mentorship for my own character development also you know the moving is hard you uproot and you leave. And so, for the first until, you know, now I'm, I'm recently married. But before that, every time I moved, it was like I'd left my entire support network. So, not only the people that I worked with that I knew, but also my friends. And I was away from my family and not always able to go home for, you know, certain events, birthdays, the holidays. I spent my first. 7 years in the military away from home over the holidays because being single I was really honestly okay with working the the inpatient shifts so that my my friends who were married and had families could go home and be with their families so it requires you to be very independent and that can be hard i would say that's a a sacrifice that we don't often talk about you know typically when we talk about sacrifice we're We're talking about a deployment that results in some sort of physical injury or even, you know, the ultimate sacrifice, giving up your life. But there are everyday sacrifices that we often don't think of in our service members. The fact that they are where they maybe don't want to be and they are not able to go home. We have little control over when we have to work. I can't just say, you know, I'm not feeling it today, guys. Like, I have to go. <laughs> it is not necessarily a choice. And also, you know, giving up other certain opportunities, relationships, friendships to move yet again to fill whatever position that they need you to fill. And so, although that's challenging, and you, I think most people can understand why that would be difficult, it is incredibly rewarding when you just embrace it. There's no point in, you know, if you get an assignment that maybe you didn't want to, you didn't want to do, you get a TDY, you get a deployment, something that you don't really fits with what your personal goals were at that time. You can only dwell on this so much until you really need to make the mental decision to make the best of it. And you come out of that much more resilient and with a better perspective on life in general than staying stagnant or not, not taking on those challenges headfirst and with an optimistic view of, well, what can I do instead of, oh, I have to, the question should be why well, I'm here. So how can I
0: serve? So you mentioned, I know we've talked a lot about your occupational therapy role. What are some of the, and you mentioned even the culture, what are some of the other responsibilities as a military personnel outside of your role as an occupational therapist, what are some of your other responsibilities? You know, I have a good story that goes with this. (laughs) So, So brand
2: new to the military. So we're talking Lieutenant Baker in 2012. And I was relatively new at Travis Air Force Base. I was new to the military. And I remember that my superiors came down and said, You need to cancel the patients that you're seeing today. You're going upstairs and you will be sitting in as the commander's secretary. And my initial thought to this was, what? No, thank you. I don't need to be a secretary. I went to, you know, I went to school. I've been commissioned to do this job. This is what I do. I'm an occupational therapist. And it was made very clear to me very quickly that that wasn't, you know, like, if you'd like to, it was a go upstairs. You will sit as the commander's secretary. And I was her secretary for about three weeks. And so this entailed getting to work early in the morning, making coffee, printing her schedule, coordinating her meetings. And, you know, you think as an occupational therapist, you're like, what? Like, how did I end up doing this job? But that's kind of that, you know, you were an officer first and the military's needs come before those that you may prioritize as an occupational therapist. And after I was up there after a few weeks, I really I see now why I was appointed to do this job and that was to learn how a military hospital works. So sitting you know, behind the head of the hospital, I was able to see all the intricacies, everything going on, how different units were working together, how we were meeting the mission based off of what, you know, what equipment was down that day, what supplies we were still waiting for, what potential conflicts were on the horizon that we needed to have personnel prepped for, who was going where. And, you know, so making coffee and printing emails seems like a mundane task, but it was really her having to do that herself as a commander would take away from our overall mission. And so my job was to keep her able to do her job, which was much more important than mine. I know it was a an excellent learning opportunity for me as a young lieutenant. And so although I kind of drug my feet up those stairs, I look back now and I said they knew where I was going and they knew I needed to see. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> I am somewhat thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, what a great lesson. And and I think like you said, I mean, it's about the military. It's not about your, you know, sometimes we get wrapped up in like my career and where I'm going. And but really when you are in the military, it's about the US military and that goal.
2: It is, it is so much bigger than you are. And oftentimes, you know, as a new therapist or even as a a new recruit to the military, you're very much, we call it like tactical minded. Your tactical space is that which is immediately around you. So the patient that is sitting in front of you, maybe the one that's waiting in the waiting room for you to call back, the email that you have to respond to. But you have to move outside of a tactical mindset in order to meet the missions of the military. We have to look from an operational perspective. We have to see big picture. Big picture military isn't seeing one patient today. It's being able to put planes in the air and drop missiles. And so that, you know, that works its way down to the importance of occupational therapy, but it's a part, it's a cog in a bigger system. So you always have to be able to step outside of your own tactical battle space to understand and understand what your role is and how you fit into it in the bigger picture and the goals for the U.S. military.
1: I think that's a great place to end. I don't know. What do you think, Kara?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, this has been so insightful. and It just has. An interesting view into our profession in the military. <laughs> We
1: could probably talk for another hour or so, but I did want to take the time to thank you again you know, for your service and everything that you do for the country above and beyond for everyone as occupational therapists as well. I can certainly
2: say that as a military member, I appreciate you saying that. And it's been my pleasure to speak to you all today and to talk about what we do. It's exciting. I love what I do. And so any any opportunity I have to share that with others, because I know that there may be someone out there listening, wondering if this is the right career path for them. And if you feel it, it probably is.
0: Yeah. You might get a few new recruits out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Send them my way, please. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Right. For sure. Thanks again. Yes. Thank you.
2: Thank you both so much as well.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion. We want to extend a special thank you to all of the women and men who have served or are currently serving in the United States armed forces. Remember, you can listen to this episode and all episodes on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcast, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue to offer valuable, relevant
0: content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit asht.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.